1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, going all the way through 10, 16 is where we're going to be this morning. It's quite a lengthy passage. We're going to read every word, so just buckle up and join with me as we go through it, all right? Here we go. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becaroth, son of Aphiath, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met a, they met a young woman coming out to draw they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He, is, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel, saw, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. 
and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what, has been, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here for yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord appointed you to be the prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, farther and come back to the oak at Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another one carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After they shall come to you to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings." Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. 
And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such a big and even somewhat strange story that's sitting in front of us this morning. We pray that we may have eyes to understand it, hearts to apply it, and to obey it. Will you give us help through your Spirit? For we know that there is no other way to grow in holiness apart from your Spirit encouraging your Word to dwell within us. We pray that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's helpful to just remember the context that this story falls in. It's a very strange story. It's a very long story. It's a big story. But you can see it's one complete story. It's one successive unit. It just takes a long time to tell it. Remember, Israel has rejected God. And we saw that uh, last week. And we saw that in the previous weeks that it was coming. But in last week's message, we saw that Israel demanded that Samuel appoint for them a king. They wanted to replace Samuel in his responsibilities, and they wanted his replacement to be a king that would rule over them and do all the things that Samuel was otherwise called to do. But you understand that this is a blatant rejection of God, mainly because God is the one that appointed Samuel to that task. God is the one that speaks through Samuel. He's the one that communicates to Samuel. Samuel is appointed to his post as prophet, priest, and judge over the people of Israel by God Himself. And so to overthrow Samuel is in every sense of the way overthrowing God. Well, you see, Samuel's sons had taken some responsibilities in another region that were previously Samuel's. And they had abused those responsibilities. They were basically defrauding the people. They were taking bribes. They were perverting justice. They were doing a whole host of things that would be incredibly sinful and an abomination to God. So Israel, when they approached Samuel, they wanted to overthrow the whole system of the judges. Get rid of this whole thing. Let's totally reboot this experience. Not just his sons, but actually to overthrow the whole system of the God-appointed judges. Instead, they wanted a king that would go out and battle in front of them that they could see that was a tangible expression of God's presence, of their presence, amongst the nations. They wanted chariots and spears. They wanted standing armies. They wanted, in other words, a strong man to go out in front of them and fight their battles and lead them into battle, even if it meant that they had to be his slaves. We saw at the end of chapter 8, in verses 17 and 18, you can look there probably just maybe a little bit before our passage this morning. In verse 17, it says, he, this is a warning from God to the people. It says, He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be His slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So, Israel's rejection of God's governing authority had grown so strong that they would rather be slaves and servants of anyone but God, even if it meant that God would no longer be their master, and in the end, when they cry out to Him, He wouldn't hear them. So He gives them this warning, and they hear it, 
loud and clear. And they say, fine. That's okay with us. Now, it's important that we remember that it specifically tells us in the Bible, time and again, that it was the cries of Israel in Egypt that reached the ears of the Lord so that He answered and brought them out. You remember that? It was the cries of the people of Israel that reached His ears and that He called them out. It was the cries of Israel during the period of the judges that He then rescued them from the hand of the oppressor, raised up a judge to deliver them, and answered their cries. It was the cries of the people for a king. He even tells them in this passage that we're in, I heard their cries for a king and I'm going to answer them. It's their cries that he's answering and responding to to give them this king that is an answer to, this, to their prayer. How ironic is that? So up to this point, God's sovereign governance over the world has brought Israel to the place of both rescue and outright rejection of God. How do you like that? It was the reason He both rescued them and the reason they're rejecting Him now. But now, however, they're told, I will no longer hear your cry. And in what is perhaps the utmost of short-sightedness, Israel says, we're fine with that. It's like your kid on Halloween. You tell them, you can only eat so much candy. You don't want to have a stomachache, do you? And they're like, no, I'd be fine with a stomachache. There's a short-sightedness. It's just blindness. You don't understand. So we're met with our passage this morning, which is a bit of an odd story, as most things are with Saul. We'll see. But it's a story about a man who doesn't know that he's about to be king. It's a man who, who wanders in search of lost donkeys until he himself becomes lost from his father, and yet while he remains in search of these donkeys, it is abundantly clear that he is still under the sovereign hand and control of God's providential wisdom. You see, Israel in the surrounding passages has sought to cast off God from them. I don't want anything to do with this God. I'm tired of Him telling me what to do. I hear the words in the law and I'm tired of all of those things. It seems like every time I go out into battle, what I really want is a good luck charm. Someone that's going to win a battle for me and I don't have that in God. It seems like He doesn't want to obey my rules and all of my needs. So Israel has sought to cast God off from their lives. But what we will see in Saul's anointing as king is that certainly you can ignore God. You can go on your whole life ignoring God. But He will never hand the reins of sovereign authority over to anyone else. Even while Israel wants a king, and even while He will give Israel a king, He will never hand the reins of sovereign authority over to anyone else. And this reality is actually to the benefit of Israel. It's actually to our benefit as well. Even though we have, and they have, continually rejected Him, we're going to see in three successive movements in this passage that God gives providential help to His people. First, we see, that God's, we see, first we see God's providential aid to Israel's king. 
God's providential aid to Israel's king. And we see this in verses 1 to 21. The story zooms in on this singular father from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at verses 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul is the son of Kish. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. And he is one of, he's going to be the first king of Israel. And when we first meet him, what we're told is that he is the son of a wealthy man, which is really important because, and particularly noteworthy, because at the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin that he is from is decimated down to the studs basically. It is ripped down completely by the other 11 tribes of Israel. So the other 11 tribes actually invade Benjamin and punish them for their sins and rip them down limb from limb. And yet we find at the outset, here is a man of Benjamin who has somehow maintained his wealth and Saul is his son. It's also particularly noteworthy because we find out that Saul was handsome in fact, it says he was the most handsome in all the nation. He was also very tall. Now, these seem like kinds of descriptions. You're like, why in such a long story wouldn't you just cut to the quick and just tell us the nuts and bolts of it? Why are you telling us all this about what Saul actually looked like? Here's what that's meant to convey to the reader. And it's very important that you understand this. Saul checks all the boxes for Israel. Remember what Israel wanted? They wanted a strong man. They wanted the king to go out and be an imposing force on the battlefield. To stand in front of the people and lead them into battle. They want to dominate the region. They want a standing army. They want to impress. They want to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. They want to have a flesh and blood God, if you will, standing right in front of them, commanding this kind of presence before the nation as he leads her into battle. Well, if you look at the description of Saul, he's a veritable Mr. Universe, right? Taller than everyone else, more handsome than everyone else, presumably stronger than everyone else. As far as Israel is concerned, he's the best of the best. But understand that this is also very different than the description we'll get from David, about David when we get there. David is going to be shorter than the rest. He's going to be younger than the rest. He's going to still be handsome. Everybody's handsome, I guess, back then. He's still going to be handsome, but he's shorter, he's smaller, he's scrawny. He can't even put on the armor of Saul, for crying out loud. But remember, and even Samuel, when he goes out to the battlefield, presumably you know the story, when he goes out to the field to, to appoint David, he's looking for a big, tall, handsome man and goes through all of his brothers, and even God says to him, No. That, that's not the quality of a king. We're looking for the heart of a king. That's far more important. But we're told here that Saul is an impressive specimen and he's rich to boot. All right? So he's all around great, it seems like. But we zoom in on this story and his father has lost his donkeys and he sends Saul and one of Saul's servants to look for them. Now, you're going to see that lost donkeys bracket this story. The beginning and the end are about lost donkeys, and we even get some lost donkeys sprinkled throughout. 
But the donkeys, the point is, are the reason that Saul finds Samuel to begin with. Now, this has a bit of an ironic twist, that the author of First and Second Samuel, which is just one book in the Hebrew, the author is meant, meaning to convey to us, here is the king, soon to be, king over all of Israel, and the image of a king is a shepherd, and so here is the future king of Israel who cannot find his donkeys, right? This doesn't bode well for Israel as a nation if the king who's going to lead us and shepherd us can't even find his own donkeys, all right? Contrast that with what we see in, in, in the end of 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel where David is found keeping his father's sheep, knows all too well where his father's sheep are. So when the story opens on Israel's king, he can't keep track of his dad's donkeys. But of course, when it opens on David, he's keeping his father's sheep. Since the imagery here is of a shepherd, we know that Israel is in trouble already. Nevertheless, Saul and his servant have been presumably gone for several days now, to the point that Saul thinks that it's a lost cause and wants to turn back because his worry is that his father is going to now be worried about us and so we just need to abandon this search for the donkeys, just chalk them up to having gone, and move on. However, the luckiest thing happened that day. Wouldn't you know it, that they happened to be in the town of Samuel the seer that day. And the servant mentions this to Saul and says, look, we're in the town of Samuel the seer. Why don't we ask him and see if he knows where it is? But... This is of particular interest to us because the conversation between the Lord and Samuel starting in verse 15. Zoom into that. Pay attention to that. What the Lord tells Samuel. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So this conversation actually gives us a really deep insight into the background of this story that's really important. See, the donkeys appear to us to have been lost due to some misfortune by some servant, maybe Saul himself, standing watch over the donkeys, and just as animals are prone to do when their caretaker loses sight of them, the donkeys have just wandered off by mere chance, and that by mere luck they happen to be in the town of Samuel when they discover they need to just return. But what we learn in these couple of verses is that Absolutely zero things that have happened in the story so far are by chance or by luck that Saul happens to be in the city in which Samuel is at the moment. In fact, the more you think about it, all the circumstances that had to be brought together for God to be able to say to Samuel, I am bringing you the king. I'm going to bring him to you. How is he going to bring him to him? Through some lost donkeys. That's how he's going to bring him to him. Well, didn't those donkeys just happen to walk out of the pen under the care of the caretaker? Absolutely not. These donkeys even were under the sovereign hand of God. 
and he's giving aid to both Samuel and to Saul by bringing Saul into conversation with Samuel. See, God is the one working throughout this arrangement to put together this meetup. And this is confirmed by the text where God tells Samuel, I am going to send you the king. I'm bringing him to you. But two things become very concerning about Saul that is at least, at the very least, implied within this text. First is his own lack of discernment as Israel's new king. He has no idea where his donkeys are. He didn't even have an idea where to look for his donkeys. He's got absolutely no clue. But you notice that Samuel knows absolutely that the donkeys were missing without even being told. He knows that the donkeys have been found without anybody telling him that the donkeys have been found. And before Saul can even mention it, he tells all these things to Saul. But it's the difference between these two men, Samuel and Saul, that gets to the point that we need to understand. See, it's not, Saul's not stupid, okay? Who, who of you or me would go out looking for lost donkeys and just divine where they happened to be or that they were found? Nobody. Saul's not to blame for the fact that he doesn't know where the donkeys are or that he has to go and search. But how is it, we have to ask, that Samuel does know where they are and that they have been found? The reason Samuel knows is because God is with Samuel. Right? God has given him that insight. In other words, the difference right now in our story between Samuel and Saul is not wit. It's not smarts. It's God's presence among them, right? The irony of ironies is that the people of Israel have rejected the one that God is with in favor of the one that God is not. They rejected the one that knows where the donkeys are without being told in favor of the one who will go on for days searching for his donkeys without a clue as to where they are. So there's a discernment problem as Israel's new king that should raise some red flags for us. But second is the passivity of Israel's new king. Doesn't Israel want a strong man? Didn't they get a tall man? Didn't they get one who is handsome and rich? Didn't they get one that looked imposing? They absolutely are going to get that. But he's kind of passive. He's kind of weak. If we got to be honest, isn't he a little bit? He's commissioned for this task from his father. And yet, before the task is accomplished, he's ready to go. Give it up. Doesn't even complete the task that he was asked to complete. But then second, he says, look, let's go back. And his servant says, no, let's stay. And what does Saul say? Okay, we'll stay. Essentially, they just go with what the servant says. Wait, who's the servant here? Is Saul the servant or is the servant the servant? Well, the passivity of Israel's king, future king, seems to raise some alarm. If that's not enough, there is a reluctance at the end of this story for Saul to even accept the nomination as king. He doesn't even want to tell his uncle when they get back about what Samuel had done. And we're going to see next week, he's going to try to run from it. 
This week's sermon is called The King is Found. Next week's is probably going to be A King is Lost. Because he runs from it. So there's a passivity with Saul that should raise some alarm bells. And when he is invited to come with Samuel to eat with him, he seems like he doesn't even want to go. Why should I go? Why, why, are you talking to the right person? Are you sure you got me? I'm from Benjamin, remember. But we come to understand that even though Israel has rejected God, that God is still providentially giving aid to Israel. It's a king you want? I'll find him. He's passive and reluctant and has a lack of insight. I'll provide for him. God is continually giving aid to a people that have rejected him. I think about that for just a second. God was essentially rejected and usurped by his own people. He tells Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. He was overthrown in his role as their king. And here is God giving providential aid to his replacement. Now, just ask, your, ask yourself, what kind of king gives aid to his successor when the successor is overthrowing his place as king? The answer is the kind of king who isn't worried that his reign is coming to an end. That's who. See, God's sovereignty isn't in question. His role as king and his authority over the lives of the people of Israel is not about to be usurped. Understand. He knows that even if the people don't. His plans to establish a kingdom are not going to be thwarted. In fact, this is included in those plans. So he's not under threat in any way. And he's giving providential aid to let Israel learn their lesson. See, God is not just providentially giving aid. He's handing Israel over to their own depravity. To let them experience what it's like under a kingship without God. As the scene shifts to this banquet meal, we see the second main movement in our text, which is in verses 22 to 24. God's providential blessing to Israel's king. So He gives providential aid to Israel's king. Now He gives providential blessing to Israel's king. Look at verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put, aside, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept, is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Saul thinks that he's going to eat with Samuel as a guest at his banquet. And there's probably going to be some others there. And he's going to be invited to participate in the festivities with Samuel. That's what Samuel had even said to Saul in verse 19. But now what we see is that there are approximately 30 persons that have been invited to this feast for Israel's new king. This is something like a surprise party for Saul. He might be in this group the only one that doesn't know that this actually is for him, that he is the guest of honor 
And so he's seated there at the head. So two things are significant about this feast. First is, as I just said, Saul is seated with his servant at the head of the table of the crowd of invited guests that are there, whether they know it or not, to celebrate the soon-to-be-anointed king over Israel. And so this scene that takes place here at the head of the table has the tone and tenor of a marriage feast. Saul here being wed to the people of Israel with this feast. But second, Saul is given, do you notice, the leg portion. Now remember we were told earlier, back in verse 13, that Samuel was about to head to the place where they were going to eat because he was finishing up the sacrifice that people were doing. Well, that actually is really important for this scene because the leg portion is the portion that is reserved for the priest. The priest has the leg portion of the sacrifice. And so the priest, after finishing the sacrifice, would take the leg portion of the sacrifice and take it home to his family and eat. So Saul is not only seated at the head of the table as the symbolic kind of bridegroom, but his symbolic father, Samuel, who is providing the feast for the bridegroom, is, is giving Saul the priestly portion. He set it before the man who is effectively adopted as his own son in his own seat, and he's given him that priestly portion. So you see, there's a symbolic transfer of power and of authority that's happening in front of these 30 persons with simply a picture of a leg being given to Saul. And all the people at the table understand full well what that leg sitting in front of Saul actually means for what Samuel is communicating to them. Saul has been given some measure of authority. But remember though, this is at God's behest that this ceremony takes place. The feast is about the priest of God who conducted the sacrifice. The sacrifice itself was sacrificed to God. No one but the priest is allowed the priestly portion or to take the seat of honor at the priest's table following the sacrifice. So this is understood by the people, all the people present, that God is honoring this transition between Samuel and Saul. See, Saul went looking for a donkey or donkeys. And he ended up with a kingdom. So God, through Samuel, is bestowing on Saul the riches and the honor of his people. But also understand something. That sacrifice was paid to God. That sacrifice from which the leg came was a sacrifice made to Yahweh. So while Saul is being blessed and, and God has been rejected in a manner of speaking by his people, there is still only one who is worthy to receive sacrifice. See, God is, is giving His providential blessing here to Saul to take the throne of the kingdom and to replace Samuel, but under no circumstance is He replacing God's ultimate authority. The priest, the judge, or the king for that matter, is still under the authority of God. So God has given him aid. God has given him a blessing in this feast that's here. But finally, we see God's providential authority to Israel's king. God is giving 
providential authority to Israel's king, in starting in verse 25 and going all the way through the end of our passage. So this, the morning comes after the sacrifice and the feast, and Samuel makes known to Saul what is about to happen to him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people uh, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So following Samuel's anointing of Saul, Samuel is going to turn and they're going to part ways. But Samuel tells him that there's going to be three signs that communicate to you that what we have done here actually has been done. That the authority over the kingdom has actually been transferred to you. Now remember, Saul knows that Samuel knows the truth. Saul believes Samuel, right? The servant has already told Saul everything that Samuel says comes true. So there's no question. Samuel has authority over Israel. His works and his, his prophecies and all those things have been demonstrated time and time again. There is no question as to whether or not what Samuel is telling him is the truth. So Samuel offers him these signs, not as proof that what Samuel has told to you is true. See, look how impressive I am. You're going to go back home and you're going to see these things come to fruition so you know I'm telling you the truth. What Saul is going to see when he goes back into town is that the authority of the kingdom has really been transferred over to him. That he really does share in part as king over this kingdom. The first is in verse 2, and he says that the donkeys are going to be told to you as having been found. Now remember, donkeys were royal animals. We see when, when Solomon takes the throne, he rides into town on a donkey. This is the reason Jesus rides into town on a donkey when people are praising him and shouting Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're, it's a sign that there is a king among us. And so Saul is going to go back and hear that the donkeys, his donkeys, have been found. So the finding of the donkeys are actually symbolic that God has given the kingdom over to Saul as its king. But the second sign is there in verses 3 and 4. Samuel tells Saul that he will, see, he will meet three men who are going up to the high place in Bethel to worship God. And each of them are carrying things for the sacrifice that they're going up to deliver. They're going up to the place of worship and they're carrying uh, uh, meat and they're carrying bread for the sacrificial uh, uh, tabernacle or place that's there in Bethel. And what they're going to offer him is the bread from the sacrifice. So as they're going up, they're taking sacrificial elements with them, and instead of taking them with them and actually sacrificing them, they're going to give two of those loaves of bread to Saul. And Saul is to accept them. But you understand, the bread and the sacrifice are reserved for the priest. Well, he's already had the leg portion of the sacrifice. Now he's getting the bread. This is in every way symbolic of Saul's authority as a priestly figure over the nation of Israel. He's to accept them. But then finally, look in verse 5 and 6. 
Samuel tells him that he's going to join a company of prophets and the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him and he's going to prophesy. So understand, these aren't three random signs that are just given to say, look how impressive Samuel is. He told us all that's going to happen. These are three symbols of the authority that God has blessed him with. And not coincidentally, one is related to Saul as king. The second is related to Saul as priest. The third is related to Saul as prophet. So here is the authority from God, from Samuel, being given over to Saul as prophet, priest, and king. Imagine, if you will, you were in Saul's shoes. You went looking for donkeys, and you ended up being crowned king of Israel. What a significant thing that's been given to you. It's like looking for a penny, and you end up finding buried treasure. But probably you'd be thinking, now what do I do? Wouldn't you? Hey, you're just a farmer looking for lost donkeys. Yeah, you're handsome. Yeah, you're tall. Yeah, you're rich. You got a great smile. People have told you you're amazing your whole life. But really, you're just a farmer. And now you're king over everything. Don't you at some point have to think, great, what do I do now? On top of all that, you're in a tribe that has been decimated by the other 11 tribes. In the nation that you're now king over, it couldn't be more divided. There's intertribal war and conflict everywhere that you look. Not only that, but this nation has never had a king before. You're the first one. They've demanded one, but they've never had one. So it's one thing to have oil poured over your head and for some crazy old man to say, you're king now, right? It's a whole other thing to now take the authority that has been vested in you and actually execute the responsibilities of a king. It's, in a sense, like a new husband who realizes he's the head of his family sometime like three or four, five, six, eight, sixteen, twenty years into his marriage, right? Where he goes, he has his first kid, and he goes, oh wait, I'm the head of a family now. I guess I better grow up and stop watching cartoons, huh? Better start learning how to do my own laundry and things like that. Things that responsible people do. It's a bit like that as this king now has these responsibilities coming from nowhere. But you see, this is where the real power and authority is revealed in this passage. And you need to see it in chapter 10, verse 9. Look right at it. Chapter 10, verse 9. When he turned back to leave Samuel. This is Saul. When he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of, that, of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. The God's people had sought to cast off God's authority over them, to kick him out of their lives. They wanted a king to replace Samuel, a king to have authority, 
to lead them into battle, to raise a standing army, to demonstrate impressive strength. And God gives them exactly what they want. Here is an imposing figure in Saul. But by the end of this passage, the message becomes abundantly clear. The one who has real and lasting authority is the one whose presence is required to grant Saul the authority. See, the authority is not in Saul. The authority, the real authority, is in the one who gave Saul his position. That's who has the real authority. He's the one who granted the powers to Saul. So what happens then? What they realize, and what, what Israel is going to realize, is though they have a tall, impressive, strong man, he's actually very weak. He's passive. He has an impossible time following after what God has told him to do. He's defunct in every way, and yet he meets all the checkboxes that Israel thought they actually wanted. So what has to happen for this king to actually act like a king? Well, what we see, in order for Saul to actually do what is required of God's king, God has to give him a new heart and make him a new man. The Spirit has to rush upon him. And throughout Saul's all his kingship, when the Spirit rushes upon him, he amazingly can execute some real kingly authority. He can actually do what God is requiring of his king and leading God's people. Similar to what we see with Samson at the end of the book of Judges. But then tragedy is ultimately going to befall him when the Lord will reject him. And the Scriptures actually say the Spirit departed from Saul. And then the Spirit says it rushed upon David and remained with him forever. See, there's never any question who has real authority behind the King of Israel. What becomes certain is that God has true lasting authority and He alone is the king maker. He alone is the one who makes the man. But you understand Israel's king, whether Saul or David or someone else, is but a type of the king to come. See, the New Testament, in the New Testament, God's own son takes on flesh. He's vested with kingly authority, and the people actually recognize this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is coming in, riding as a conquering king who has found his donkey. He is a prophet and the people actually recognize him as much. More than a prophet, he's the Messiah in fact, Jesus asked his disciples, who do, you say, who do people say that I am? And they answered, some say Elijah or Jeremiah and another, and, or another of the prophets. His disciples even recognize him more than simply a prophet. He's the Messiah. They acknowledged that his message and his miracles were prophetic. But all of that mattered very little without his ministry as priest. Instead of merely ruling over his people as the kings before him had done in his priestly capacity, like he had every right to do, Jesus took his righteousness into the Holy of Holies, and on the cross, he sacrificed his life on God's altar, paying for the sins of his people once and for all. 
And see, Matthew tells us that his high priestly responsibilities were fulfilled on that day in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. See, the curtain that separated God's people from the Holy One that had created them was put there because of our sin. Because it was so great that if the curtain wasn't there, it would absolutely decimate everyone that came in contact with the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died, His role as true prophet, as true priest, as true king, rendered that curtain unnecessary for His people. And so it tore from top to bottom. But you also understand that not everyone has such a privileged position with the Almighty God. Some, some in this very room, stand right now as enemies to the cross of Christ because of their faithless rejection of the One that came to save them. So here's what I don't want you to hear. When we talk about the sacrifice of Christ, I don't want you to just automatically include yourself in that as if you belong there if you really don't. See, every passage of Scripture should actually cause us to deeply reflect on our relationship with God. And so when the curtain tears in two, it is a blessing for His people. There is no more separation between God and His people. However, The curtain tearing in two also means judgment for those who are not His people. Because now there is nothing that separates you from God. Understand? So when we look at this depiction of the curtain tearing in two and what Christ has done, we need to understand that there are some who stand as enemies of the cross of Christ because of their rejection of Him. Now if that's you... my encouragement to you would be to consider your position in relation to God. Do you actually stand as an enemy of the cross of Christ? Then if that's you, then consider your sin, confess it, turn toward Christ and repent. You can confess your sin to Him right now. Confess your sin of unbelief. Confess your sins of disobedience. Lay them on the table. Turn to Him in repentance and trust in Christ's sacrifice for you that that was actually for you and it was all you ever needed. It's often so difficult for Christians as we read the Old Testament because we see things like this in Scripture where the Spirit rushed upon Saul. And after that happens, Samson defeats an army, Saul defeats an army, prophets hear from God directly, and he begins speaking and prophesying. And there's a sense in which we look at that and we wonder what that must have been like. 
What is it like to have the Spirit rush upon you like that and you're able to do these impossible feats? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand what we actually have as New Testament Christians. The new heart and the rushing on of the Spirit that God grants to Saul in this passage will just as soon be taken away from him. And a spirit of torment will be given to him. You see, this this arrangement between him and God is very, very temporary. But as children of God in Christ, we have not only been given a new heart, but the Holy Spirit that accompanies the new birth is a permanent fixture. The Spirit of God now takes up residence within you. He dwells within you. We see in this passage how God is treating the king of Israel. He's giving him providential aid. He's blessing him. He's granting him authority. But do you understand that what you have in Christ is far better in every way? Do you want help? Do you want aid? Jesus tells us, that whatever we need will be provided by our Father. He says, For you are more precious than than many birds or the lilies of the field. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. He is always there to give you aid. Is it blessing that you want? We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. God did not spare His own Son, so how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Paul tells us in Romans 8. The whole earth is yours in Christ, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. What more blessing do you want than eternal life? What about authority? Jesus tells His disciples before He ascends, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The kind of authority you have been granted is on behalf of Christ to carry the good news of the gospel to the nations. That's the kind of authority you have. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have an embarrassment of riches that make the richest kings of the earth, including the kings of Israel, blush. But Christian, how much of your life, given all that you have in Christ, how much of your life is spent wallowing in self-pity and doubt? How much of it is spent worrying about this thing and that thing? How much of your lives are spent living in shame over past sins that you've confessed a thousand times and no matter how many times you think about it, with so much regret in your mind, it can't seem to wash the stain of that sin away. So you confess it time and again because you feel like it just still is there. You need to understand that your self-loathing is actually casting doubt on the kingly and priestly authority of Christ. He had authority to lay His own life down to pay for your sins. 
And right now, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, continuing in His role as priest. Don't let your self-pity cast doubt on His authority. You have to remember, God makes the man. That is the difference here between Saul and Samuel. That is the difference between Saul's responsibility and role and Samuel's role and responsibility. We see it actually be transferred over to Saul. It is God who makes the man. What does that mean for you then, Christian? You are what God says you are. We will see that with Saul. God says he is king, and no matter how passive he wants to be, no matter how reluctant he is to take the crown, if God says you are king, you are king. So if God says you are son or daughter, so you are. It doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter what you think about you. What matters is what God says you are. It is God that makes the man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart, every mind in here. Sometimes it's difficult to wrestle with texts, to understand what they mean, to apply them to our lives. Sometimes it's hard to see what a passage about a king searching for lost donkeys has to do with me. Father, we pray that you would break through those exteriors, those blind eyes, those hard hearts, that would seek to throw this passage away as if it doesn't pertain to us. And instead, tune in to what you're actually communicating. That you are in sovereign control of this world. That all things revolve around you. That this is your world and we're invited to live in it. So we pray that you would give us the kind of confidence that we should have as sons and daughters, knowing that we are your children. Not so much confidence that we boast as if we did any of this, but the kind of confidence as children that come into your throne room to ask for what they need of their Father. Pray that you would give us that kind of relationship, that kind of awareness, that where we cast aspersions on Christ and His sacrifice by our own self-pity or wallowing in doubt, that you would instead lift our head. Where we are boastful as if we did any of this, pray you would humble us under your mighty hand. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.